All right, well, as we continue uh, in James, we've come to a passage containing what amounts to several if-then statements. I love scripture of this type because it becomes very clear what we can expect from God. I personally don't want to expect anything from God that he has not told me to expect. You know, that, that, that leads to a lot of disillusionment and a lot of discouragement. Um, on the other hand, if God makes a promise in his word, well, you can count on it. So here we have James, the half-brother of Jesus and second oldest son of Mary and Joseph, inspired writer of scripture, making about five different statements along the lines of, if you do this, then God will do that. That's mostly what we see in this passage on the surface, and that's what makes it practical and helpful. However, if we're not careful and consider only the surface level, we might be led to believe that our relationship with God all depends upon us. And as we have discussed, that is not accurate. The only reason our relationship with God seems to depend upon us is because God has already acted in the first place. God is always the cause of everything good in our lives. But because he gave us freedom of choice, we can resist the effect. The main message here then is this. Get out of the way. When we humble ourselves and submit to God, remember that he is the Lord of our lives. We can receive what He is already doing and what He has already done. As I put it last week, we need to remember that God asks nothing of us that He does not give first. That's why I've titled this two-part message, God First. There's a double meaning in that title. One theme of this passage is that we need to put God first in our lives, but the other meaning and that which I've been speaking of is that God is always the first to act in regard to his relationship with us. For instance, when we read through our text in a moment, you're going to hear God calling us out as adulterers and adulteresses. Often we betray God by loving the world and other things more than we love him. That grieves the heart of God and drives him to jealousy because his love for us is so very deep. And so even as we hear God call us out, we must remember that the reason he is angry is that he first loved us. He could have chosen to hate us forever, but he chose to love us instead. He does not even wait to love us until after we have loved him which is why we start off as adulterers and adulteresses. God has loved us since before we were born, and he demonstrated that love on the cross. Even while knowing some of us would reject him altogether and others would constantly stray. So as we read this passage, and as we think about the if-then statements that are here, we must not forget the implied truth behind each statement, the truth that God has already acted in such a way as to cause our choices to matter. This is important because any religion that starts with what people can or should do is empty religion. And empty religion kills. Hopefully this will come clearer as we go along. Let's start taking a look at our text. We covered verses 1 through the first half of verse 7 last time, and we will cover the second half of verse 7 through verse 10 this time. But let's read the whole thing and review a bit first. Fasten your seatbelts, James 4, verse 4 
adulterers and adulteresses. Whew. That still just gets me every time. It's just like, boom. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture is, it says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will free, flee from you. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. I'll be brief in review, but remember that last time we covered the first two if-then statements in this passage, and I'm putting these all in equation format. From verses 4 and 5, we saw that friendship with the world equals enmity with God. I need to help everyone, I tried to help everybody remember that in this type of context, the metaphor of the world does not usually mean people in the world, but rather anything in the world that takes our hearts away from God. The world is anything that is not part of the kingdom that God is bringing down to earth. The world represents anything that's not part of God's agenda, His plan, something that brings Him glory, anything that's not about Him. Our end is to love and glorify God. Anything that pulls us away from wholehearted devotion to God and full-throttled involvement in what He wants to do in us and through us is metaphorically referred to in Scripture as the world. There's no watering this down. If you've become one of God's children by grace through faith in Christ, then flirting around with worldly thinking, worldly pleasures, worldly ethics, worldly goals, worldly attitudes, and anything that moves God down the list in terms of your affections or your priorities provokes jealousy from Him. Not a good idea. Thankfully, verse 6 says, but he gives more grace. And then James goes on to lay out the second if-then statement, which I communicated with the equation, submission to God equals grace from God. We talked about how this is what to do if you find that you have been choosing the world over God. Basically, to submit to God here is to agree with him about your wrong priorities and to change your ways to line up with his. His grace is found in full measure if we simply will turn from our way to his way. Now today we'll pick this passage up in the second half of verse 7, which simply says this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I'm so thankful for those nine words. If I ever got a tattoo, which is highly unlikely, that's probably what it would say. I often quote this verse in my own spiritual battles. It's so simple, so clear. And in the spirit of my southern Missouri roots, I'm going to put it this way. Resisting the devil equals he gone. <laughs> now, this being the case, can we ever truthfully say the devil made me do it? No, we cannot. From this verse, does it sound like you need to have taken classes in spiritual warfare or of special training 
uh, as some kind of spirit warrior in order to be able to overcome the devil. No. You see, ultimately, the devil is lazy, folks. He's looking for easy pickings. Personally, I think we often give him too much credit as, as believers in terms of how much power he has in our lives. On the other hand, if you don't know Christ and therefore don't have the Holy Spirit living in you, that is a whole different story. You ought to be afraid if you don't have Jesus. But if you know Jesus as your Savior, the devil doesn't have a shred of power over you that you don't give him. Amen. It's just so simple. Resist the devil. Brother or sister, he gone. Amen. He will flee from you, says James. The word flee basically means to run away in terror. To flee is more than just a leaf. To flee is to run away screaming and to stay away. You may not be sure that you have that kind of power over the devil, but the Bible says you do. And what does it take? Does it take certain words or a magic formula? No, what is required? Consistent resistance. That's all. This could change your life, but you got to believe it or it won't change anything. So let's think about this verse more holistically for a moment. What if you're a person who learns to consistently resist the devil? Let's just say you get this principle down and you really start resisting time after time. What does that mean for the enemy? It says it means he's going to move on to an easier target. If you consistently resist why would he waste his time on you? He's not everywhere like God. You know, I mean, his forces are limited. He can only do so much. If you're a consistent resistor, he's pretty much going to stay gone. Let me tell you from experience. On the one hand, when we are seeing God do great things, or when we are making headway for the kingdom uh, as a pastor of a church, or maybe if you're leading a small group or whatever it is, if you're doing something and you're seeing God use you in your life and, and, and great stuff is happening, um, you may experience a personal attack. I mean, I've had that happen where it's like, okay, I know this is, I know why this is happening. Too much good is going on. You know, and I have to agree with the idea that spiritual leaders seem to have a target on their back. Sometimes increased impact equals increased attack. But now let me tell you something most leaders won't tell you. The honest truth is that the times when I contend with the devil the most are not when I'm making the biggest difference, but rather when my resistance is down. It's when I give an inch. It's when I dabble in sin. Are you hearing me? That's just the honest truth. Experience has taught me that the more consistently I resist, the more the devil leaves me alone. But if I start giving an inch or two, oh, he pours it on. Let me put this another way, and I get this straight from our text as, as well as from experience. Are you ready for this? This is, this is pretty radical, but I believe it's true. The people who get messed with the most by the devil are the people who give in to him the most. The people who are bothered the most by Satan. Now notice, you know, it doesn't mean everything, everything bad that happens in your life isn't from Satan, by the way. I mean, that's another thing we do. 
the people who are bothered the most by Satan are usually not consistent resistors. James says, if you mostly resist, you'll mostly be left alone. The best way to train the enemy to stay away for good is to send him running in terror, maybe nine or ten times in a row. You just keep resisting and see if you don't find yourself dealing with less temptation, less discouragement, less deception, and less of the things that the devil uses to bring you down. Conversely, you give in even one time, and guess what? He's back. That's right. What now? Resist. Now, why does this work? It works because God already acted. God first. What happened on the cross and through the resurrection? The Bible says Satan's head was crushed. He's already defeated. He just likes to play make-believe with anyone who will join him. God already destroyed Satan's power through Christ, and now we who are his are more than conquerors, Romans 8, 37. When you resist, you show yourself that you can win. And conversely, the best way to lose is if you think you can't win. Satan is the deceiver. Show him just how weak he really is by resisting, and he will flee. Followers of Christ have a powerful defense against Satan. We can be strong in the strength of the Lord. We're not victims. We cannot be overcome by evil, but we have the power to overcome evil with good. Remember from a few weeks ago, we have nothing to fear but God. And as believers, that's the reverent kind of fear. But the reason we don't need to fear the devil is that God already placed him under our feet. It's really quite simple. According to James, resist the devil and... Resist the devil and... Thank you. I have converted you to hicks, hickness. Now verse 8 <clears throat> is also wonderfully simple and direct. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Here again is a verse that's easy to remember and filled with encouragement. To stay with the equation format I've been using, I'll put it like this. Drawing near to God equals God drawing near. The point of using equations here is to demonstrate the absolute nature of these propositions. James does not say, draw near to God and maybe he will draw near to you. He doesn't say sometimes or as long as or possibly. And why is this an absolute proposition? Is it because we have power over God? I mean... Someone might take it that way as if we could control God, and, and that's why the context I've been trying to give you is so important, God first. Taken by itself, honestly, it would seem, James is saying, that God moves back and forth, near and away, close and distant, depending upon our action, as if we were the magnet and God were a chunk of metal, but that's not biblical. The whole of Scripture reveals an immovable God. God is not so finite as to float around nearer and farther based on our actions. He's not the reaction, but the action. So how does this work? If God is everywhere and even inside us as believers, how does this really work? We're talking about the nearness of God. And as believers, we know God is inside us in the person of the Holy Spirit. That's pretty near. We also can remember that Jesus said he would be with us. He would never leave us or forsake us. He was speaking of the Holy Spirit with whom he was about to trade places even as he ascended into heaven. In Greek, the Holy Spirit 
is referred to as our paraclete, that is, one who is called alongside. And indeed, he never leaves our side, not even for a moment. This truth is clear in the New Testament. So what are we to get out of this principle in verse 8? Well, first, let me point out an important linguistic piece to the puzzle. Did anyone see the sunrise this morning? No, you didn't. The sun never moved. Sorry for the trick question. We sometimes sing a song that says the sun comes up. It's a new day dawning. But that's not literally true, is it? No, the sun doesn't come up. The earth rotates and orbits the sun, making it appear from our perspective that the sun moves, but it is we who are actually moving, not the sun. The sun is generally a fixed point around which our entire solar system revolves. And yet we are actually closer and or farther from the sun at different times, depending on our orbit, um, our rotation, even the tilt of the earth on its axis. So many ways it would seem the sun moves nearer and farther from us. But in reality, we are the only ones who are moving. In the same way, James speaks of God. He tells us that God draws near, even though in literal reality, God is already drawn near to us and he never moves. But what James wants to communicate is that from our perspective, God draws near when we draw near to him. You see, that's the way it feels to us, even though God never actually went anywhere. Now that we've settled that, let's get practical because it's the, those who have experienced the nearness of God desire nothing more. There may be no higher goal for the believer than, than drawing near to God. Our text indicates that if we're not experienced God's nearness, it's because we're not drawing near. So, how do we really do this? How can you and I draw near to God and thereby experience the reality of being close to Him? We could talk about the spiritual disciplines like prayer and Bible study and solitude and attending church and doing life together as with other believers in smaller groups, all of which are indispensable. But I want to point you to another idea this morning and one that has radically impacted my life over the years. I want to tell you about practicing the presence of God. Practicing the presence of God. This verbiage comes from a 17th century monk known as Brother Lawrence. He worked in the kitchen of a monastery. He was pretty low on the, uh, on the ladder in monastic life. And yet, of all the monks of his day, he's the only one we still uh, read about or really learn from uh, to, to any large degree. Why, why is he still making an impact? Because Brother Lawrence made a decision early on to make his entire life an experiment in what he called a habitual, silent, secret conversation of the soul with God. Practicing the presence of God. That's what he tried to do all day, every day. And like everything else, the more you practice, the more it works. Brother Lawrence wrote this, I make it my business only to persevere in his holy presence wherein I keep myself by a simple attention and a general fond regard for God, which I refer to as an actual presence of God. Brother Lawrence did not aspire to do great things or notable things. He only aspired to do whatever he did with God. He took Jesus with him as he worked with his hands. Again, knowing that Jesus was with him anyway, 
but making a point of remembering and practicing that fact. Wherever he went, they went together. Whatever he did, they did it together. Is it possible that, that drawing near to God is as simple as actually recognizing the fact that he is near? Remember the principle. God doesn't ask us to do anything he didn't do first. He's already drawn near. Open your eyes to his presence, and before you know it, you'll find yourself swept away in the arms of God. But there's another facet to this drawing near to God, and we see this in our fifth and final equation from this passage, which is this, humility before God equals help from God. James continues, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. The truth is that unconfessed, unrepentant sin sets up a barrier between us and God. Ongoing sin will break up your walk with God and keep you feeling far from Him. Even as believers in Christ, ongoing sin can make us feel separated from a holy God, like He isn't near. Talk through, or think through this with me. It's, tr it's true that if you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, all of your sin is forgiven. Past, present, and future. God has cleansed you from all unrighteousness. He has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. He remembers it no more. You are covered by the blood of the Lamb. And God sees you as a holy person. If you've come to the cross, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, that's all true. That being the case, one might say that the way to deal with ongoing sin is just to ignore it. Because God doesn't see it, nor does He hold it against us. However, that is not the way the Bible tells us. It's not the way God has told us in His revelation that we call the Bible. It's not the way God said we should deal with our sin as believers. Instead, we are called to repent and to repent regularly. What does it mean to repent? Literally, it's to turn away from sin and to turn uh, to God um, to change our ways, but one of the best pictures of repentance can be seen in the verses we just read. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, lament, mourn, weep, and humble yourself before God. That's a perfect biblical description of repentance. There's some stuff there about your soul and your body and your mind. It's about your heart, but it's also about what you do with your hands, which represent your body. We need a heart change, and we need a behavior change. That's repentance. This is how we draw near to God, even though He never left. But why is this necessary if God has already forgiven us? Let me use an illustration. I'll pick on Jeff and Kelly Sue, because that's what happens when you sit in the front. For the sake of the illustration, let's just say that Miss Kelly Sue is like Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. And let's just say that Jeff is a bad boy. I know it's hard to imagine, but for the sake of the illustration, imagine that he behaves badly toward his wife. I won't suggest a particular sin, but let's just say it's really bad. 
And let's also assume that in her perfection, Miss Kelly Sue is able to completely forgive and, uh, for, uh, her husband without any, uh, even without him confessing, uh, confessing or changing his heart. Or she's just already completely and totally forgiven him in advance. Um, she's just so good that uh, she literally doesn't even remember what happened. Okay, does this mean that Jeff does not need to come to his wife and ask her to forgive him? Does this mean the best thing for their relationship is for him to never mention it? Does this mean he should not get on his knees, shed tears, and flat out beg her to give him another chance? No. In fact, that's exactly what he should do. Why? Because even if she really could miraculously forgive and forget like that, his relationship with her would still be broken. Jeff will never forgive himself until he confesses and repents before her. He will never be able to draw near to his wife the same way until he has spent some time in cleansing and purifying and lamenting and mourning and weeping and humbling himself to ask for forgiveness. It's the same when it comes to our relationship with God, even though he really is perfect and even though he really has already forgiven us of our sin. What stops us from going to God in confession and repentance and sorrow? What keeps us from repenting from our sin? Mostly pride. But James reminds us that humility before God equals help from God. What kind of help? Look back at our text. The help we can hope to receive from God through humility is help back up. It says He will lift you up. And in context, this is about helping us up off our knees, restoring us from the place of humiliation. Those who come to God on their knees in humility walk away in confidence. Don't miss this. It's no small thing to be lifted up by God. But listen, you will never experience God's lift up until you are willing to get down. During the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln seemed to understand repentance. As we can see from his words spoken in a lesser known, if no less important speech, he called for a national fast day designating Thursday, the 30th day of April, 1863, as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. That's what he called it. And here are some excerpts from what President Lincoln said. It is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon. I'm going to go back to English now. And to recognize the sublime truth, the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. The awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people intoxicated with unbroken success we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity too proud 
to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Notice, by the way, that he was clearly speaking to believers. How refreshing to hear a president call out to Christians as if we were the core of the nation. Problem is, it's no longer true. But that's another issue. Lincoln spoke to those who at least respected the Holy Scriptures and understood concepts like repentance and grace. And to those who understood this idea of humility before God, the Lord. I speak to a smaller crowd today, a remnant, I suppose. But we who call ourselves the church should understand this concept well. I'm reminded yet again of Second Chronicles 7.14, which says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Most of you will remember this was my text on the first Sunday of the quarantine. And it is no less appropriate today than it was then. We are his people called by his name. We are the ones who need to humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways. We are the ones to blame. We are the only ones who can humble ourselves in such a way as to be lifted up and perhaps even in so doing to lift our nation up. We tend to be far too extreme with our definition of wicked in verses like these. What is it that the people of God were doing or being warned not to do in this verse? What was the horrible wickedness of the Israelites in Second Chronicles or of the church of Jerusalem addressed by James? Well, it was always the same. Their wickedness was adultery against God. That is, friendship with the world to the neglect of their relationship with him. Still, compared to their pagan neighbors, the Israelites were as good as gold. Compared with the Romans, James' church full of Jewish converts was pure as daylight. And yet that comparison doesn't seem to matter at all to God, does it? The pagans and the Romans were not the standard, you see. No, I'm afraid these wicked Israelites or these wicked church members were probably no worse than the best of us. And yet God called them to humble themselves in repentance. James says to the church, humble yourselves before God and He will lift you up. Some things never change. So there are five truths in regard to your relationship with God. One, friendship with the world equals enmity with God. Two, submission to God equals grace from God. Three, resisting the devil equals he gone. Four, drawing near to God equals God drawing near. And five, 
Humility before God equals help from God. As we've discussed, each of these puts the ball in our court. Ours is the next move. Just remember that the reason it's our move is that God has already moved first. And listen, the underlying incredible fact is that the God of the universe wants to have a close, loving relationship with you. I mean, think about how these truths play out. God wants to be your friend. God wants to give you grace. God wants to be near to you. God wants to help you, to lift you up. Incredible. In his wonderful book, God is Closer Than You Think, John Ortberg writes this. We all hear voices, at least I do. Some of them are distorted and destructive. They speak to me in thoughts of envy and resentment and fear. Some of them are healthy and strong. They speak words of love and truth. The ones I listen to shape my life. But there's one voice above all to which we're called to listen. Jesus said that he is the good shepherd and that his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Ortberg continues, throughout history, those who have practiced God's presence most have insisted that they hear his voice. They have learned, so to speak, to program their minds to be constantly receiving the divine channel. Are you walking with God? Are you listening to his voice? Are you growing in your relationship with Christ? How do I do those things, you ask? Well, that's really the purpose behind everything I try to teach you here at church. Virtually everything I ever preach, everything our men's and women's ministry leaders teach is intended to help you have a closer relationship with God. But to boil down this particular message, if I had to put it in just one sentence, I don't think I could do any better than James' words from the middle of this passage, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Has it been a while? What if we were to have a powerful experiment this morning? What if we tried to actually put this into practice right now? What if we were to draw near to God right now? Now, drawing near to God will require different things from different people. Some of you may need to trust Jesus as Savior for the first time. You need to be forgiven of your sins. You need to be washed clean by, through faith, by grace through faith. You need to come, to come to the cross right now and say, yeah, I need to be saved. I, need, I surrender to Jesus. I need him to forgive me of my sin. I'm turning away from myself, and I need him. I want him to be my king, my Lord. That may be, you may have to do that before you can really draw near to God because you've got to go through the cross. others of you may need to repent of ongoing sin issues because as we discussed those can absolutely keep you from drawing near to God some of you may need to submit some area of your will to humble yourself and agree with God in obedience ultimately if you try to draw near to God if you really seek him you're bound to find out what's getting in the way 
And God stands ready to tear that barrier down if you will let him. We're going to spend some time in prayer. And I want to try something today. Consider the front row and altar area. And try to stay about six feet apart from other families if you can. But we're going to, I want to ask many of you to come forward and pray. You just kneel somewhere. It could be at the front row or even anywhere up here. And we're just going to take some kind of action. Let's go on offense. Let's stop sitting in the seat of scoffers, as it says in Psalm 1. And let's have a come to Jesus moment, okay? Let's come and let's humble ourselves. Get on your knees if you're capable, if you're able, physically. If not, sit in one of the front rows. Not everybody will come. I understand that. I don't want anybody to feel, you know, manipulated or, or forced. But for some of us, you might just need to take that step. <clears throat> so I'll just ask everybody to stand first. And we're going to pray. A song is going to play. And we're going to spend some time doing what we read about this morning. Some of us may need to cry. We may need to humble ourselves to the point of lamenting and, and, and weeping uh, over our own sin, of our own, our own sins of commission and our own sins of omission. How many times have you shared the gospel this year? It's, we're the problem. That's what the Word of God teaches us. We, we aren't the light that we should be. Are you willing to get on your knees today and humble yourself? Let's, let's draw near. Um, draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. While the music plays, let's pray. I'm just going to ask anybody who will come up and find a spot and, and, and get on your knees. I'm going to be there with you as well. And I, I made this sermon shorter so we have time to pray. If, if you're not going to come, then pray, pray from where you are. But I hope several will. Let's just find a, find a spot somewhere and get on your knees and let's just tumble ourselves before God and pray in silence.
Father, we humble ourselves before you. We may not fully understand how much we should. We may not fully realize how we've strayed. But Lord, we need you. We need you as believers trying to live in this world. And we need you to bring healing to our land. Lord, we need revival in the church. We need awakening in the land. Things are not going in the right direction. So we claim the promises of your scripture today, your word that say that if we'll humble ourselves before you, that you'll help us, you'll lift us up, that if we draw near to you, that you'll draw near to us, and we resist the devil, that he'll flee, that all of the promises that we've been studying, God, we need you. And so today we turn our hearts to you. I pray that any, any commitments that have been made in this moment, any sin that's been repented of, that it will, uh, that it will be played out, that, that, that we will turn and truly turn away in behavior, that we'll cleanse our hands uh, from these things, that we'll um, actually walk out the commitments that we've made today to you that we'll seek you more, that we'll stop ignoring you, that you're right there and yet we ignore you. We live out our lives like you're not even there. God, forgive us. It's appalling to think about the God of the universe, that you live inside us, that you love us, that you died for us, and we just like live out a whole week and it's like, oh yeah, God, thank you for allowing us to, <laughs> thank you for your grace. But help us, Lord, to be reminded this week of your love and your presence. And let us find the peace and the hope and the help and the strength that only come from you. You're the only one who can get us through. So we surrender to you, your spirit. Change our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.